Viam Dei, Latin, e pluribus unum. Uh, more Latin, it's on our money, isn't it? Yeah, it has nothing to do with what I'm talking about, but Viam Dei does. Viam Dei means the way of God. I think every week I get up here, uh, I'm giving directions. Anybody need a directions in life? I've got a bunch of signs as you drive in. Uh, uh, you know, uh, I'm the guy when I go to Home Depot, I don't even try to find it in there. I just try to find an orange apron. I just try to find the guy who's supposed to know. I want directions. I want to know where I'm supposed to go because life is full of, uh, well, just full of uh, lostness. We need direction. And so when you come here on the Sunday mornings, uh, I'm hoping that as we open God's word, you're getting direction. So every week that we gather is volume day. I'm teaching you the ways of God. But we want to spend the next four weeks specifically focusing on the ways of God and the will of God. How, how to discern not just the general will of God, which is for all of us as revealed in Scripture, but the specific will of God for your life. Everybody here should follow the general will of God. and Everybody here, the Holy Spirit, is going to direct their steps in the specific will of God for your specific life. And I want us to you know, be able to better understand that, to be able to better sense the Holy Spirit as he leads us, and to be able to better understand the Scriptures so that we live within the general will and specific will of God. But uh, uh, we, we basically talk about that as we uh, express our mission statement here as a church. Does everybody remember our mission statement? We start with this. We say we exist to surrender to God as he makes disciples for us here and around the world. Now, when I say we exist to surrender to God, I'm trying to truncate, I'm trying to shrink down that statement as much as possible because I want to make it as easy to remember as, as it can be you know, remembered. But here's what I really mean. When I say we exist to surrender to God, I, I mean we exist to surrender to his will. We want God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Anybody prayed that one before? Yeah, we want his will. And, and coupled with his will, handcuffed to his will, are his ways. We exist to surrender to his ways. If you want to understand the Christ life, the Christ life is, first of all, uh, understanding who Jesus is, receiving by faith what he accomplished for us on the cross, uh, a work that we could never accomplish for ourselves. And then once saved, once found in him, our mission is to walk in his ways. He called it this narrow path that leads to life, right? We were saved from this wide road that leads to destruction, right? From the history of rock, there's a highway to hell, but there's just a little stairway to heaven. Are you with me? Someone told me that last night. I thought I'd run it out here, see how it worked. But even in that last phrase of our of our mission statement is we exist to surrender to God as he makes disciples through us here and around the world. God makes disciples through us. People find faith in Jesus Christ through us. That's, that's our mission. We, we want to surrender to him and his will so that he can use us to, to, to spread his gospel, to share him with the rest of the world. But when I say disciples, what's another word for disciples? Another word for disciple is follower. And what do followers do? Well, they, they follow the way. Now, there's been times in our family's history where uh, we would find ourselves in a crowded mall at Christmas time. This is back when the kids were, you know, elementary age or junior high age. And, and I would literally do this. I would put Ben behind me and Cooper behind him and Kai behind him. Uh, those are my kids. And I'd say, okay, just hang on. And they'd grab my shoulders, and this is how we'd go through the mall. Train, right? Don't let go. Oh, but Dad, I wanted to go to that store. Doesn't matter. Stay with me. Here we go. And that's how we would get through the hectic, the crazy the, uh, the uh, insurpassable, unsurpassable, un, un, unpassable, something like that. Uh, we would just follow, and that's what a disciple is. He's a follower. She's a follower uh, on the way. Now, 
I'm going to confess, and I'm sure you can too, that I don't always follow. I'm not always the best disciple that I can be. I'm not always a good follower. I'm not always interested in God's will or God's way. I would prefer mine. I'm pretty sure I'm right. Are you pretty sure you're right? Most of us are pretty sure we're right. I mean, we might be, you know, more gentle in asserting it, some of us not, but, but we're pretty sure we're right. And so when God's will or God's way is getting the way of our being right, it's harder for us to follow. Sometimes, though, we, 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 uh, it's not a matter of rebellion, it's just a matter of confusion. Ever been in life and um, there, there's something coming up next, but there seems to be seven options, and you're just like, God, point! Show me the one! Or, or been in a situation in life, and you've tried everything, but now you're, you're, just, you're, out, of, you're out of bullets, you're, out of, you're done, you don't know what to do next. And you're like, God, write it on the wall. There's that fiery finger in Daniel, do it again. Whether it's rebellion or confusion, well, Scripture speaks over and over again about we as followers just looking to our God, looking to our Savior for the direction that only he can give. Jesus was talking to his, his friends in John 14, a familiar passage. Uh, he'd been telling them for three years, three and a half years almost now, he's about to go and die on the cross, and he's, he's been just peppering them. Listen, fellas, I, I came for a purpose. I came to go to Jerusalem and die and, and for this temple to be rebuilt again in three days. He, he'd been alluding to his death and resurrection over and over again, and, and we, we give the devils a bad rap, or the devils, that's, that's not the disciples at all, uh, Sorry, guys. Anyway, uh, but we give the disciples a bad rap, and we say, well, they should have just understood. No, they were pre-crucifixion. We're 2,000 years post-crucifixion, and we got, you know, we got the story down. These guys were just trying to figure it out, and so Jesus is, is, is just one more time trying to explain to his disciples, I got to go. And he says these words to him. He says, listen, John 14, verse 3, verse 3, if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again. I'm, I'm coming back. The second coming is going to be a glorious time. Come now, Lord Jesus. Get us out of here. I hope as a Christian you, you, you want that with your heart every day. As, as great as things are here on earth, it's going to be inexplicably better in the presence of our Christ forever. Is everybody with me on that? Okay, so come now. And Jesus says, yeah, I'm coming back. I'll go to prepare a place for you, but I'll come again, and I will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. And then he said this, and you know, you guys know the way to where I'm going. I've been talking to you about it for three and a half years. They didn't. Thomas says as much. He says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. Anybody ever said that to God? God, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what's going on in my life. I've tried everything with this kid. And by state law, he has to stay here. <laughs> but I'm at my wits end. I don't know what to do next. I've tried everything in this marriage to make things right. And still my spouse won't love me. I've prayed to you, God, for a job that would better fit and meet our family's needs, but I'm still in this one, and I'm going nowhere. We're all Thomas at some point in our existence. Lord, we don't know where you're going. We don't know what you're doing. How can we know the way? And in those moments in our lives, I believe the Holy Spirit uh, whispers this answer to us again and again and again. It's what Jesus told Thomas. He said, well, I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the life. No man comes to the Father except through me, but, but don't miss those first three words. I'm the way. You don't know what's going on? Uh, I, I understand you got fear. You got confusion. You got doubt. You got all these things, but just 
trust me, Jesus says. I'm the way. I may not rescue you from this, but I will certainly walk with you through this. I'm the way. I'm the way. Now, we're going to talk through these four weeks about the way of God, the Viam Day. We're going to talk about his will, his ways. We're going to try to learn to discern better what he hopes for us and, and, and walk in his path. But today I just want to, from Psalm 139, um, answer this question. Why must God's way be our way? I mean, sure, preachers get up and we sing the songs or whatever, and, and, and his way is, is obviously the way that we as Christians are supposed to go. But can we logically uh, form an argument that says, yeah, his way is going to be best? Yeah, we can. And I think that's what David was doing as he penned Psalm 139. Well, most scholars believe that David wrote this in a time of trouble. If you ever read 1 Samuel, David faced a lot of it. Things started out great. He was anointed king of Israel, right? He was just watching, watching some sheep, and then all of a sudden he's like, oh, I'm the next king, cool. And then he takes uh, you know, some pizzas to his brothers at the front line of a big battle, and he ends up killing a huge man, a giant, right? And everybody's starting to sing songs about him. Things are going smashing very well, right? And then all of a sudden the king in charge, Saul, says, we gotta kill David. And he sets an entire nation out to end this young man who, by the way, had done nothing but serve his boss. He had done nothing to deserve this. He was just persecuted. So he runs from cave to cave. He actually runs to the, 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 the mortal enemy of the Israelites, the Philistines. He acts like a crazy man, froths on his beard. It's all in there. You can read it. If it gets boring this morning, First Samuel, go ahead. <laughs> and in some of those times, he would sit down Grab his harp, I don't know how he did it, but he would, he would write songs, and scholars think he wrote this one in one of those dark times. And it's one of his dark times that he dealt with theology. He, he pondered the omniscience of God. He pondered the omnipresence of God, the omnipotence of God. And it led him to some resolve. And so I just want us to understand today why God's way is the best way, why God's way must be our way. The first reason that God's way must be our way is because God knows everything, omniscience. Omni, all, science, knowing. God knows all. Omniscience. God knows everything. In times of ignorance, when we don't know something, we like to turn to the people who do. Back before Google, who had that friend that could ever settle every argument? Hey, I'm in it again with someone on 80s pop music. Uh, can you settle a score for us? Um, who sang, oh, Mickey, you're so fine? That earworm? Don't? Okay. And, and this friend would be the pop 80s, you know, uh, authority, and he would say, well, that's Tony Basil. She wore the cheerleading outfit in the video, right? Or, or who, won the, who won the World Series in 2004? You could ask me that, because after 86 years, the Boston Red Sox won the World Series in 2004. We all go to people who know for the direction and answers that we need in life. And I'm here to tell you, no one knows more than your God. He knows everything. Look what it says in Psalm 139. He knows our past. It says, oh, Lord, David writing this, oh, Lord, you have searched me, past tense, and you have known me, exclamation point. You know everything about me, everything that's ever happened to me. You've, you've watched it all from the time, as we'll find later in the text, that you whip me, uh, knit me together in my mother's womb. You've seen every day, every moment of my life. God knows my past. God knows my present Look what it says in verse two, He's, he switches tenses. He says, you know, present tense, when I sit down and when I rise up, he's referring there to his actions. If I'm sitting down, you see me. If I'm rising up and moving, you see me. You see my actions. 
Now, we might be able to argue in this day and age with technology being what it is, that we could kind of be God-like in that. I could put cameras around you your whole day, uh, your whole night, and I could film, tape, whatever you do, and I could see your actions. And maybe in that way, I would be semi-omniscient? Not really, because I wouldn't know what's going on inside of you, but that next verse in the text helps us understand, or that next phrase in the text helps us understand that's what separates us from God. God sees our actions, our sitting downs, and our rising ups, but he discerns my thoughts. God knows exactly what you're thinking right now. Anybody want to flip their screen? He sees everything that's going on between your temples. He knows your thoughts, your fears, your emotions, your ill wills. Everybody else might see you you smile and be like, oh, that's so nice. But God reads the screen in your head that says, this stinks. And you're an idiot. We've gotten really good at fooling people on the outside uh, and having an entirely different dialogue on our insides. But God sees it all. He even sees uh, us when we are far from him. Uh, Atheists, take note. You may not believe that God's there, but God sees everything that you think. And when we are afar, when we are far away from him in, uh, in our hearts or in our commitments, uh, Regardless of that, intimacy is still ours with God. He sees all that we think. He says, uh, verse three, you search out my path. You know what that word search means? It means that you sift. It was a word used of winnowing or uh, a winnowing fork or, or, or sifting grain. Uh, they would take forks and they would throw grain up in the air. The chaff would separate from the kernel and that's how they'd get what they needed to grind up into flour and make their bread. Uh, but that's what God does. He sifts through all the noise. All, all, the, all the, the, you know, the fronts that we put up to make everybody else think everything's great. Some of you came in here this morning, you're listening to this sermon again. You don't have a heartbeat for God at all. But you're sitting in here and you're making everybody think you do. And God takes uh, his winnowing fork and he sifts through all of your BS and he says, you know what? I see your heart. It says, you search out my path and my lying down, and you're acquainted with all my ways. We talk about our paths, we talk about our days, when we talk about our lying downs, we're talking about our nights. Around the clock, God knows us, and he sees us. Look at verse four, says, God not only knows my past and my present, but he knows my future. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. This should rock us a little bit. God knows what we're gonna do before we do it. Before the words leave our mouth, God knew you were going to say it. And some of you are like, well, why doesn't he stop me? (laughs) Let me acquaint you with uh, the power of the conviction of the Holy Spirit. God stops us all the time. Are you kidding me? Left to ourselves, do you think we'd make a bigger mess of our lives than it already is? Anybody? Yeah. In fact, I know I could directly draw a line between my stupidity and my problems, lots of them. And gratefully, God, in his infinite wisdom, stops us all the time. I mean, you, you've pro- who's been in that conversation? You thought it, it was almost out, and you're like, mm, no, I'm not gonna say that. I, I say that all the time in conversations when I'm you know, arguing with Eleanor, or in, uh, you know, there, there are things that aren't going to move the conversation forward. Like, I, just, I should have done it just a few minutes ago. I think I just said BS. Did anybody hear me say BS? <laughs> I want to apologize for that. 
I, I am a little rougher around the edges. I normally keep that out of sermons. I wish God had helped me there. Anyway, um, <laughs> but he does that all the time. Don't get mad at him for your mistakes. He keeps you from making more mistakes than you will, and I will ever know, all right? But don't think for a second that anything that we say, do, think, or, or anything that happens in the world is a surprise to God. He's gone into the future. He sees how things turn out. Before a word comes to our lips, he knows what we're going to say. Now, omniscience is what we've been talking about. God sees, knows everything. Omniscience on some level should terrify us. Omniscience should terrify us. Here's why. God's a holy God. And you might be able to fool the rest of us, but nobody in here is fooling God. And God is the one, truly, that when you and I sin, we offend. We offend other people. I'm not saying that there you know, aren't other people that we hurt when we sin, but, but we grieve the Holy Spirit when we sin. And God sees all of our sins. You're sitting on some sins right now that people in your family and your friends will, will never know because they're private. They can't see them. God sees them all. And if God is the just and holy God that the scriptures teach us that he is and that all sins must be paid for, well, if we understand that God's omniscient, it should dramatically affect how we live how we move, how we have our being. We shouldn't have the pockets of holiness and the other stuff. Because, you know, this is the classic argument. I can't do that in church. I'm in church. I can't do that. I can't say that. I can't think that. I'm in church. Wait a minute. God's not just at church. God's everywhere, as we'll see in a minute. He, he knows everything. And a holy God who has our entire record at his disposal I mean, apart from what I'm going to talk about next, that is a terrifying, desperate situation for humanity to be in. God knows all. You can't hide anything from him. But at the same breath, though, omniscience should totally comfort us. Because here's what we know about, uh, about you know, the scriptures, what it teaches us about God in his knowing. He knows all of us. He knows everything that we do. But like it says in Romans, it says, but listen, God demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, he sent Christ to die for us. If you don't marvel about your God on a daily basis in this vein, you need to start. That God, even though he knows everything about you, past, present, and future, he still chooses in his inexhaustible love to love you anyway and by his grace to send his savior to die, or son to die for you so he could be your savior and you could have reconciliation with the holy God that none of us could ever deserve. God knows and loves us anyway. That's a miracle, people. That is a miracle. Now, you, you listen, run it through your relationships. When you finally find out stuff that people are doing, you break those relationships, and no one bats an eye. Well, you shouldn't hang out with that person. Oh, that came to light. Oh, it happens all the time in humanity, but with God, it never happens because his love is just that big. Look what it says in verse five. It says, you hem me in. This is David marveling after the fact that he's just described God being omniscient, knowing his past, present, and future. He says, but yet you hem me in 
comes from the market, you would take a, a sack of grain and, and, and if you had bought all this grain in an Israeli market, you would you'd sew up the top. And that's how you would make sure that you didn't lose any of your grain. You, you, you enclose me in yourself. You go, uh, it says there that you go behind me, that's his past. You go before me, that's his future. And you lay your hand upon me in my presence. It's the picture of one of these babies that we were dedicating this morning. Uh, you guys, you know, you're all moms and dads. You know how it works. They come out. They still want to feel like they're in the womb. And so you're taught as a parent to take these babies and just take that blanket and wrap them up as tight as you can get them, like mummify these things, right? Because that's how they feel the most secure. And it's amazing how even as they grow older, that's still the case. Like my kids would get in fights with each other, or go through disappointments, or fall down and go boom, right? And what would their first move be? Find a parent. And have that parent pick them up and hold them, cover them from behind, lay their hand on them so that they feel his comfort. God goes behind us in our past. He goes before us in our future. He lays his hand on us. And David says this. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Can't handle it. Mind blown. Just doesn't even know where to put that. That a holy God would know him and still choose him and hem him in. It's too high, I cannot attain it. Why, why must God's way be our way? Because God knows everything. You can't fool him. He knows everything and chooses us still. What's the second reason that God's way must be our way? Because God's everywhere. You know the reason he knows everything? It's because he's everywhere. He sees it all. He's not bound by bodies and time and space. He, he is spirit. He's everywhere. Verse 7 says this, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? The rhetorical questions. Answer, nowhere. Because God's everywhere. God's in the high places and the low places. Look at verse 8. If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, which is Hebrew for hell, you are there. God's everywhere. Some of you are like, well, no, Mark, God's not in hell. True, that's what makes hell, hell. Hell is the absence of God and his grace. But don't think for a second that God isn't sovereign over hell. It's not like Satan's got his own piece of real estate. God is everywhere, in control of everything. And there's nowhere that we could go, high or low, that God is not. That's good for us, especially Americans, because Americans get their fair share of success. Did you know that? We are the best fed, <laughs> most blessed, uh, one of the most blessed countries in the world. And, and especially American Christians, they can experience all these successes and think, look what I did. But you need to remember that in those successes, God is there. In fact, God is the cause of your success. He's the giver of your blessings. And let us be mindful that when we go to the heights of heaven in our uh, existence, God is there. But listen, this, this was more, probably more pertinent. When you go through the trough, the dark nights of the soul. When you experience the lowest of lows, you got the diagnosis, it's cancer. She filed. This is really happening. The boss asked you into the office, and you don't need to come in on Monday. You know what I find? Most of the time when I counsel people, they don't come to me in the highest of highs. You know what I see, y'all? The bottom fell out, Mark. And you've you got to remind me that there's a God because I don't think there is right now. Because if there is a God and he does love me, he would have never let this happen. Okay, let's go back to what I talked about earlier. Don't you think that more bad things could and should happen to you and me? 
Does everybody understand that God keeps tons of bad stuff from happening to us? And that if he does allow something bad to happen to us, he's going to use it for our good. And the one that the scripture says, that trials are going to make us stronger, they're going to build our endurance, they're going to be used to perfect us. That's James. And so I quote those verses. And I try to prop you and myself <laughs> as I counsel with the, the guy in the mirror. Oh my, God, I don't know if you're really here anymore. And he reminds me, oh, I'm here. Highest of highs, lowest of lows, I'm always here. God's in my back and forth. Look what it says in verse nine. He says, if I take the wings of the morning, where's the, where's the sunrise, anybody remember? East, that wasn't a trick question, good job. Uh, <laughs> so he, the wings of the morning here is, is the sunrise. The wings of the morning is, is, is the east. And he says, if, if, I, if I take the wings of the morning and I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, does anybody know where the sea is in relationship to Israel? Where's the Mediterranean in relationship to Israel? West, good guess, and it's totally right. He's basically saying, in my backs and forths, in my this ways and that ways, in my mundane, every moment existence, God is here. He says, if I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the utmost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand will hold me. All right, hang on to that verse, people, because that is a comforting verse. The implications of God, God's omnipresence are these, that he wants to lead and hold us at all times. God's an overhear God. Did you know that about God? I talked earlier about us not knowing what to do. God's an overhear God. He's not trying to hide. He's not trying to be confusing. He's an overhear God. Anybody ever sent someone uh, to get a table at a restaurant before you got there? You know, get us a table, I'll be right there, right? And so they find their seat somewhere in the restaurant, and you walk in, and you're starting to talk to the person at the front who's seating people. Hey, this guy was supposed to, I'm supposed to meet him here, and he, he's kind of ugly, and you know. But, uh, but then he sees you come in, or she sees you come in, and they stand up, and what do they do? Duck under the table, right? Oh, this will be fun. It'll be like hide and seek. We'll spend the whole lunch hour, him trying to find me. It'll be awesome. No, that's not what they do. What do they do? They stand up and, you know, some guys that I go out to lunch with, they're, they're like, hey, settle down, bro. I was going to find you. Easy, you know, you know. Hey, you know, yeah. But that's our God. It's like over here. Over here. Let me lead you. Let me show you what I have for you next. Now, you may not like it. <laughs> you may want to say, hey, can I, is there another door? Any other options? But he's never going to hide himself. He, he's an over here God. His presence means that he wants to lead us and he wants to hold us. He wants to hold us in place. I'm so grateful for the times that God and his presence has held me in place. Like I, I was tempted to go this way or that way, uh, but God's presence said, no, let me hold you. Let me hold you right here. Yeah, it's going to hurt for a while. This is not the most comfortable place and certainly it would be easier if you took another job or if you moved to another state or if you had another spouse or if you, certainly it would be easier. But let me just hold you here. Because what I have for you here is for your flourishing, it's for your best. Especially in those dark places. Look what it says in verse 11. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Now, that's very poetic. Did everybody get that last phrase? Darkness covering us, we all get that. If you turn the lights out, darkness covers us. But the, the light being like night, 
Ever, ever had things going so bad that even the good things are bad? Like you're so just crushed by everything else that's going on in life, even the fun stuff isn't fun. There's just no joy. And the light becomes dark. Surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. David understood this. But even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. Someone say, praise be to God. Because there's no darkness when it comes to God. There's no darkness at all in him. He is light. And when he comes to our darkness, he is this bright beacon of hope. There's no darkness too dark for him. So David goes on. I don't have the time to read all the verses. I know I wouldn't. So he, he talks about being knitted together in, in, in his mother's womb. He talks about the omnipotence of God, the all-powerfulness of God, and how he is the, uh, uh, not just the sustainer of our lives, the director of our lives, uh, the knower of our lives. He's the beginner of our lives. Uh, he gives us life. Uh, but in all of these things, in omniscience, omnipresence, and in omnipotence, David comes to these conclusions. I want to share with those with you as we close. Let me give you the volume day packing list. The way of God packing list. Uh, it's not really things that you need to remember. It's things you need to forget. Anybody here an overpacker? I'm a chronic overpacker. I'm being uh, weaned off of this, though, by the uh, rules the airlines have come up with. You've got to pay to like, send bags now. And I'm, I'm like cheaper than I am an overpacker. And so, you know, if you go on a long trip with me, I'm going to be a little ripe towards the end of it because I'm not going to pack enough. But anyway, uh, <laughs> that's horrible. <laughs> but there's two things that we need to leave behind when it comes to following God in his way. The first one, as David points out here, is that we need to leave sin behind. We need to leave sin behind. Look, look this is a strong, very strong uh, portion of this psalm. Look what David says in verse 19. He says, oh, that you, God, that you would slay the wicked, oh, God. O men of blood, depart from me. He, he is, he's, this is his prayer. He's saying, God, take wicked people from me. Take them away from me, the temptations that they would give me. It's almost like what Jesus prayed in his prayers. He taught his disciples to pray. Uh, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Get it away from me. He goes on and he says this. He says, uh, these men, they speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. And some of you are busily underlining this because you are so excited to be able to hate people who don't do what God does. You are pumped up and you've got a verse now to prove that it's okay for you to hate people. Slow down, cowboy. Anybody read the rest of the Bible? Because the Bible in the New Testament says, that we are to love our enemies. Is everybody with me on this? But David's being poetic. He's writing a song. He's, he's being emphatic for effect. He's saying, listen, God, I want so desperately to stay on your path, to be in your everlasting way, that I want anything that could pull me away from that path to be out of my life. Help me to go to war with sin, help me to, to be vigilant and belligerent with those who would lead me into sin. Not hating them, but hating the direction that they could lead me to. Can I just say this about my life and probably yours? We're way too soft on sin. I'm, I'm, I came from an angry Baptist church and uh, you know, a lot of times every sermon was just you know, a beat up session 
and, uh, and we didn't get a lot of grace, and so I have swung the pendulum the other way, and I want to rely on grace and live in grace. And, but, but can I say that the danger of us being kind of a, 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 a grace-focused uh, and obsessed culture is that, is that we're soft on sin. And we're just like, it's no big deal. It's a big deal. Because Hebrews says that we should throw off everything that hinders and the sins that so easily entangle us so that we can run this race. That we need to fix our eyes on Jesus and we need to get rid of anything else that isn't him. And so David prays this last prayer. He wants to get, uh, uh, he wants to leave sin behind as he packs for the volume day, but he, he says this, he wants to leave self behind. He says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way of understanding. He says, bring, bring the fork, God. Bring that winnowing fork. Sift me. Search me. That's that word. He says, try me. Yeah, try me. You know what that means? Perfect me. Try me means to, uh, you know, uh, in trials over and over again, heading towards perfection so that I become who I'm supposed to be. See if there be any grievous way in me. Take that light and shine it on my life. And if there's anything in there, get it out so that I can walk in the way that's everlasting. My sister uh, had Hodgkin's disease twice before she was 30. Went through chemo twice. Uh, we didn't know if she, you know, she was going to make it. You get cancer once, it's bad. You get cancer twice. Now you're, you know, you're not talking about when, or excuse me, you're talking about if it's coming back. You're talking about when. And so if you've gone through cancer, your family's gone through that, you know that there's yearly checkups. For it's like every six months. They run scans. They do these laborious um, blood tests and MRIs and all these things to make sure uh, that the cancer doesn't reoccur. And by God's grace, over the last 20 or so years, my uh, sister's had two kids and, uh, and, and clean scans. Yeah, God, for that, right? But, but uh, uh, yeah, thank you. But, but are we, listen, if we live in an age where we can check, isn't it honest to check? I mean, how many people have just said, I'm not going to the doctor, and then they go in stage four? If you'd only come here sooner, we could have seen it. And what David is saying before all the technology and all this stuff came into being, he says, Lord, run a check. Scan me. See if there be anything in me that could be sin, that could be not you, that would lead me away from your path. And get it out so that I can walk in the way of the everlasting. Could you stand with me as we close? We're gonna close in a little different way this morning. Usually I pray for us. I dash down to the corner and shake hands and you guys have a good day, I hope. We're gonna to pray together. We're gonna to pray this prayer. It's David's prayer as he closes this song. As we begin this series on understanding God's will and God's way, let us pray to be on the way of God together just like David did here in this psalm. Ready? We're gonna read these verses together. Read them as a prayer. Don't read them just because the pastor's reading them and this is what you have to do to be able to go to lunch. Read them from your heart. Make this your prayer. Ready? Let's pray. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. We're almost done. Be really easy to walk out of here. Did you know prayer's a conversation? God wants to talk to you. You just asked him to search you, to try you, to see if there's any grievous way in you. Wouldn't it behoove you to maybe pause for a second, see what he has to say about that stuff? 
Yeah, you could walk to your cars right now. You could go on with the rest of your Sunday routine, whatever it is. But maybe today is the day. You say, well, you say this. You say, God, I want to be on the vine day. I want to be walking your path. Show me what I just asked you to show me. Lead me to what needs to change in my marriage, in my parenting, in how I live my life. Lead me to those things and give me your grace in changing them. So you do what you got to do. I'm going to walk to the corner. You listen to your God, here or wherever, and let him answer your prayer. God bless you guys. I love you. Walk in his ways.